Hello and welcome to another Smack Insider podcast. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Tim Huang, founder and CEO of FiscalNote. FiscalNote entered into a $1.2 billion combination agreement with Duddle Street Acquisition Corp. in November. It provides data products that track a broad range of legislation and regulatory actions at the federal, state, and local level. These are used by companies and government institutions themselves to try and keep a handle on the constant swings and incremental changes in regulation in the U.S. and abroad. We discuss how FiscalNote landed on Duddle Street as its preferred partner in a triple-track process, and how it plans to use its status as a public company to further its M&A pipeline and other initiatives. Take a listen. And so, Tim, you originally started this company when you were 21. You were living out of a Motel 6 in, in Silicon Valley. What has been the most challenging part of this entire journey to get here to this point? You know, uh, I think that from the very beginning of the company, uh, <laughs> we, we, we had a lot of sort of lessons learned along the way, right? And so we were doing this for the first time. You know, we built this company brick by brick, product by product, customer by customer from the very, very beginning. And probably the most difficult aspect is just having a high rate of learning, right? And just be able to absorb every aspect of the company, you know, as the company was sort of getting built at, at a massive scale very rapidly, growing the company from, you know, three people on a laptop to 10 people, to 50 people, to hundred people, to 500 people plus. And it's never a dull day on the job for sure. I can imagine. And so, I mean, what we're going to be getting into the nuts and bolts of it too, of all the things that your, your company offers in terms of the the information that is tracking, but a lot of it is, and, and what first stood out to me about Fiscal Note was that you essentially sell information about what certain government agencies are, are doing, and, and the largest group of your clients are actually the government institutions themselves. So, like, when did you see that there were there were needs there with the you know the federal government literally not being able to properly interpret the information that it actually already has in some capacity? You know, so I I started off my career actually in politics. So you know, I worked for you know Senator Obama when he was running for president. I'd run for elected office. I was elected to office at the age of seventeen, mm-hmm. Board of Education in, in Maryland. And so I think you know you sort of get a, a very strong sense of when you're operating in and around policy and government, the specific challenges that exist in that particular category, right? So as an example. You have situations where you know you're sitting in government making policy and you're dependent on other people. Let's say you're in education and you're dependent on the Department of Education, the federal level, you're dependent on Congress, you're dependent on the state legislature, the city council to make decisions around curriculum or spending or teacher salaries or whatnot. And these are just this just in one vertical. So the amount of time that you spend in government following what everybody else in government is doing is actually pretty astounding. If you're sitting in the White House, you spend an inordinate amount of time trying to understand what people in Congress are doing. If you're sitting in the Defense Department, you're trying to understand what people in Congress are thinking about in terms of your next year appropriations, your budgets for next year, thinking a lot about what foreign governments are doing at any given time. Um, And that's basically just the nature of government is, you know, government's tracking what other government agencies are doing. And so I think it was sort of inherent in the problem in that I just felt like as you were kind of operating you just get a very strong sense that this entire system was just a gigantic game of telephone, just people kind of picking up the phone and calling each other saying, you know, what's going on, and that there's probably a much better way to organize that information for the world to understand. And aside from government clients, the next largest group of your customers are in the healthcare industry. So how do they utilize the platform? Well, you know, whether it's in healthcare or in other regulated sectors like chemicals or energy or transportation, food and beverage, um, you know, a lot of companies are facing a significant amount of regulation, right? So if you were to take a 10 to 20 year bet, do we think that 
policy and regulations will become more complex or less complex over time. I would venture to say that, you know, you, most people take the bet that it's going to be an increasing level of regulatory complexity. So specifically, healthcare companies are probably monitoring, you know, changes at the state legislative or state regulatory level around reimbursements to medical professionals, or they might be looking at pharmaceutical marketing regulations, you know, from the FDA or from state and local uh, policy officials. They might be looking at the rate at which generic markets are opened up for pharmaceutical companies and, you know, emerging markets and the like. So healthcare is one of those markets where public policy drives the revenue and cost structure of entire businesses. And so you really need to understand the regulatory landscape to really understand the core elements of a particular business. And that's not just in healthcare, but in almost every sector today that we're kind of seeing across the board. And then Fiscal Note also tracks a lot of things that our listeners in the financial world are probably also trying to follow themselves, such as compliance issues, crypto regulation, and ESG classification. Where are you seeing the biggest demand for new categories? So I would say that they're kind of in two areas. The first is in areas where there are significant technological changes that are driving regulatory uncertainty. So cryptocurrencies, uh, gig economy, uh, autonomous vehicles, where you know the technologies are just basically creating a situation where regulators are trying to play catch up um, into a particular industry. The second are where there are significant social changes going on in society. So three that I can think of off the top of my head, ESG is, is one of them. You know, number two might be um, geopolitical risk, right? So issues pertaining to US-China relations or the situation out in Ukraine at the moment or uh, particular energy changes in the Middle East. Um, those things are quite significant in terms of driving particular patterns. And then there's obviously elements uh, within that bucket around things like the globalization of our labor force as a result of the remote working environment, different labor rates and, and wages that exist um, in different parts of the world. And then you have other, other social changes like DEI, right? So diversity and inclusion and the regulatory components around diversity and inclusion. So anywhere where there's significant change driving policy or regulatory change is something that we're obviously very interested in following overall. Yeah. And it's also interesting to me, you know, that you kind of came up through Washington. So you knew from, you know, the really close level, just how complex all of this stuff is. And I imagine the further you get away from Washington, the more complex it all seems, which is why I found it interesting that you ultimately uh, are doing this deal with an international SPAC. You know, I'm just curious how, what that, those initial conversations were like, as you're getting this deal together as, as what is sort of the international perspective on what fiscal note offers and, um, and the market. Yeah, you know, FiscalNet has really grown over the last couple of years. Obviously, we were, we were started in Silicon Valley, you know, moved our headquarters to Washington, D.C., but we do now have significant operations across the European Union, uh, particularly in Brussels and London. You know, we have significant operations in South Korea and, you know, Taiwan, Singapore, and Australia. And so I think the nature of political and regulatory uncertainty is an international one. If you are a Korean conglomerate right now, you know, you are rushing to figure out you know, how you can uh, take advantage of investments that you're making in Southeast Asia. If you are a European regulator, you're trying to understand, you know, what your counterparts are doing in China, the United States around regulating, you know, big tech companies and the like, right? So, you know, it's all kind of part of this globalized regulatory and policy effort. I think that as we're selecting Duddle Street, you know, for the SPAC kind of component and the like, it didn't actually particularly matter too much to us whether they were international or not. Obviously, I think the, um, the SPAC themselves, in terms of their international focus, the deep connections they bring, particularly in Asia and, and the like, um, were value add in terms of the ability to be able to drive continued growth, particularly in, I would say, you know, the, the kind of greater Asia region, uh, which is kind of where we're seeing a lot of our growth and M&A opportunities, particularly over the last year or so. 
And just how did you kind of come to that decision as well on your own uh, to go with a SPAC um, versus an IPO or continued private funding rounds? I mean, did you sort of make that dedicated decision or was it that SPAC started coming to you? Uh, how did that come about? So we actually did a, a triple path evaluation with our investment banks, right? So, you know, we had one path evaluating a private capital raise, which we, we took a look at, got some offers there. You know, we took a look at an IPO pathway. Um, I've been working with a, one group of banks on that side. And then we were evaluating simultaneously kind of a SPAC approach um, as part of kind of our third rail here. Ultimately, I think that, you know, we decided that we wanted to go public. A lot of our strategy is predicated on the ability to be able to continue to drive our inorganic uh, strategy in addition to our organic strategy. And so having a tradable currency in the public markets obviously helps us to accelerate m and opportunities overall. And then when we were evaluating an IPO versus a SPAC approach, candidly, the Duddle Street SPAC was just so differentiated from the rest of the SPAC market that it just became sort of a, a no-brainer. And you know, I think in hindsight, it looks obvious, but in the middle of the summer, you know, we were looking at this particular SPAC that had a fully backstop redemption 100% backstop on um, on any redemptions that happened prior to the merger. On top of that, they had the sponsors offering to anchor the, the pipe um, as part of the process, right? And so from our perspective as a management team, it's effectively fully underwritten IPO. You know, you have zero uncertainty in terms of the capital that's going to be coming in. You have complete certainty in terms of the price. And I, I think that's differentiated against an IPO where you might not get the price certainty and then other SPACs where you might not get the capital, on, you, you might not get the capital certainty because they might not have the same redemption qualities. And so I think that candidly, if um, there were any other structure, we probably would have gone with a traditional IPO, but the Duddle Street I, uh, SPAC you know, was just so standout that we ended up just going down that pathway overall. So one thing that I've noticed is that Fiscal Note has been on a huge acquisition spree with 11 deals announced last year in 2021 alone. How do you approach M&A decisions as a private company and how will that be different once you're public? So the thing is, I think from a financial perspective and, a, and an operating perspective, I, I don't think that there's actually that much of a difference between how we, how we approach things as a private company versus a public company. You know, the characteristics that we look at as a, uh, you know, in terms of operating characteristics, these are data businesses that have incremental data sets um, that we want to kind of incorporate into our platform, or might be an incremental workflow capability we want, we want to offer for our customers. They're typically between five and 15 million recurring revenue, all subscription. They're all typically between you know, 10 and $100,000 of average contract value with fairly high retention rates. So I don't think we'd ever go out there and acquire a business that doesn't have any one of those kind of core characteristics. So we're not going to suddenly turn around and acquire like a transaction only business or an e-commerce business or um, anything that sort of doesn't fall within our general category. In terms of the characteristics and the way in which we measure, you know, hurdle rates and IRRs and whatnot internally, it's, I think very, very much the same. I mean, we think about a proxy for our future earnings. And so we think about dilution relative to the revenue potential of a particular business. We think about our cost of capital, you know, where in the capital structure are we going to source the funds for you know a particular acquisition, whether it's a credit facility or issuing equity or you know using cash off the balance sheet or you know seller financing or whatnot, and then we match that up against the pricing that we kind of see in the in the general marketplace, and so that level of discipline that we're making in terms of constantly you know shooting for the lowest cost of capital, the most efficient source of capital, um, you know while we're allocating capital into the highest returning assets and products internally is something that. You know, I think we're just going to, we, we are fairly disciplined today, but are going to be a lot more disciplined in the future. So the level of sophistication that we have, I would say internally around evaluating the return on investment of 
our own internal capital is fairly high. And it's something that we expect to continue in the public markets. So many of the deals that you've closed last year had products focused on geopolitical risks, and that seems much more relevant than ever with the Ukraine situation and supply chain issues. So what are your priorities in terms of international coverage with your next wave of M&A? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of the same, right? I mean, we're looking at solving those issues for our customers. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the things that our customers care about are fairly wide. You know, they care about things like what are the sustainability regulations requirements, you know, of operating in Southeast Asia? You know, what are the changing labor dynamics in Latin America as a result of changing uh, uh, unemployment benefits or, or you know, healthcare benefits or whatnot that are being, you know, kind of enacted by national parliaments? So those types of questions, I think, are fundamentally important for our customers to understand. And so in many ways, we're kind of following what they're asking for. Uh, by continuously finding opportunities in that general category. The other thing I'd mention is alternative data paired with policy information is increasingly becoming uh, a big area of focus, right? So um, in addition to understanding um, the policies themselves, the downstream effects of those policies, you know, whether it's um, labor output or energy output or, you know, e-commerce trends um, uh, and particular data sets around, you know, credit card transactions on an anonymized basis, what people are purchasing and what those prices might look like are, I think, really critical for helping companies and asset managers to understand, you know, once this policy is enacted, are we seeing the downstream impacts of that in terms of prices or in terms of the general economy? Great. And kind of going over to the product side, especially with all of the acquisitions that you've already done, how do you make decisions in terms of, you know, what you want to integrate maybe into a single product? What do you want to keep as its own thing that you you brought in and, and what, you know, should constitute a new tier for subscriptions? I mean, whatever you're doing, it, it seems to be working. You're over a hundred percent net retention, but just how does that process work on your end? It's really driven by our customers and what, and with the experience that they're looking for. And so, you know, when, when you look at other tech companies, for instance, that, you know, have grown um, partially through M&A, you know, Microsoft is a good example. You sort of look at situations where, you know, it doesn't make sense to integrate everything, right? I mean, you're not going to pull up a PowerPoint presentation on your Xbox. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can, but I, I, I don't think that's like a primary use case that people are, are trying to integrate, right? So in some cases, we have situations where we have certain product lines um, where there's a particular customer segment in an organization that's seeking to kind of integrate a particular workflow and we'll just make it easier for them like we do with any other, you know, product investment that we make. In other cases, you might have, a strategy person evaluating, you know, labor market trends versus uh, a lobbying person in Washington on K Street, um, and they're they're not necessarily, you know, they're looking at they might be looking at the same information, but they're not necessarily as part of the same workflow. And so, um, in those particular situations, it doesn't make sense to integrate. And so, a lot of it is driven by can we make our customers' lives better, and what is the best bang for our buck in terms of capital allocation? So, is it the best use of our time? to uh, you know, reorient this particular engineer or this particular product team to integrating versus building something new for them or trying to uh, improve you know, XYZ feature in a different product line. And that's, we try and stay fairly nimble about how we think about our allocation strategy. Yeah, and fiscal note also sort of fits on some level on, I guess, the highest level, it appears to be in a niche. But in reality, as you've been kind of talking about all the different use cases, it really is runs the gamut uh, in terms of uh, consumers. But, you know, with a, a fair amount of government customers and things like that, how how does that change, I guess, how sticky your uh, subscriptions are and, and how how is this a little bit different than maybe what some, uh, you know, some people may be thinking in terms of the, the wider field of SaaS data and analysis products? So, I mean, you know, these businesses get big, you know, over time, right? And you look at S&P Global now merging with IHS Market over, you know, 12 billion a year in revenues, you know, 
Thomson Reuters, Avalara, you know, all in the kind of multi-billion dollar revenue range or multi-billion dollar market cap range. So, you know, fiscal note, we are still very, very, very far away from entering into what I what I think is sort of our scaled position. Uh, if you look at the legal information market overall or the financial information market, you know, a lot of these players are half a billion, billion plus in revenues. You know, we're slated to do, you know, call it $173 million run rate this year. And that's I still think that we have a lot of kind of total addressable market to grow into. I think uh, if you kind of go di- deep dive into the micro levels, you still see a lot of opportunity in parts of the government. You know, there's a lot of opportunity in uh, the intelligence community. There's a lot of opportunity in the state and local kind of um, governments that exist uh, around the United States. We we have fairly good penetration uh, with foreign ministries around the world, but we don't have a lot of penetration into those domestic agencies in say the UK or in parts of Europe or you know in parts of Asia and the like. Um, a lot of you know a lot of our kind of room to grow opportunity is still very white space for us, and we're still kind of I would say chasing a lot of the open ended uh, market opportunities overall. And then considering that this is an election year, there are a lot of worries that U.S. politics are going to stay turbulent over the long haul. Do you ultimately see that as a risk to the business or a boon? Well, I mean, again, think back to the customer, right? So if you see a party change in government, typically you see policy changes and people want to understand what those policy changes are. If the Republicans take back the House and the Senate, the White House changes in four years, if it stays the same, whatever it is, people want to know the rate of executive order changes and rule changes and regulatory agencies. They want to know what the priorities of the new Congress are. You know, they want to know, you know, where the, the points of compromise are going to be. And that's not just in the United States, but, you know, there could be a regime change in Southeast Asia or, you know, uh, a massive sort of um, uprising in the Middle East or something. And those do result in quite significant shocks to the system. And that's where we, we really shine, um, where in the, in the depths of COVID, for instance, and, you know, governments were sort of leading the pack here in terms of shutdowns, lockdowns mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and, and the like. Employees were literally on the edge of their seats trying to understand what their obligations were, you know, what governments were mandating what at any given time. Um, and in those situations, you know, fiscal really shines through and, and pre- being able to provide the critical information that people need to really do their jobs. Yeah, and something you're you're mentioning there as well uh, made me think, you know, about going to the state and local level and in some ways going full circle all the way back. I mean, I'm not sure you'll get quite all the way back to school board level, but nonetheless, it's interesting because this is also, it seems like an area where the the, the public information coverage of it has been vacated by the, the decline of, of local and small, medium-sized newspapers and, and things like that. I mean, what do you see in terms of the macro trends that are, that are occurring that are kind of creating more space and more need uh, for information? Look, the governments are always going to do their jobs, right? Which is governing and regulating. So, you know, I think at any given level, you know, you're right in the sense that the coverage levels of those areas are, have, have been declining. And what's interesting is that like you sort of end up in a situation where the most boring aspects of government are, you know, sometimes the most consequential. So as an example, right now, you know, state regulators are up in arms around um, fintech in general. Um, they're up in arms, for instance, around buy now, pay later companies. Um, <laughs> and the level of regulation that's coming is being much more aggressive, uh, you know, at like the California regulator level, the Texas regulator level than at the CFPB. And so um, those are the types of regulations that um, are getting significant level of traction, but in many cases, you know, most consumers are not aware um, as a result of the lack of coverage. And then, you know, companies are just blindsided. You know, if you operate a ride sharing company and, you know, there's some city council somewhere that, you know, enacts like some new, you know, ride sharing tax or something from their local airport. I mean, it's, 
you know, very difficult for these companies to just stay on top of everything, you know, all the time. So, you know, it's, it's sort of inevitable that, you know, automation and technology are going to kind of come in and provide those opportunities to be much more efficient overall. Great. The, the, the transaction was announced back in, in November. Um, can you give a, any sort of an update in terms of what the timeline looks like uh, heading into to close? Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're still, uh, you know, progressing here. Um, you know, I think uh, we've gone through a couple different terms with the SEC. And so you can actually follow along in our amendment process online. But you know, the hope is that we can kind of settle that out, you know, with the SEC fairly soon, you know, and then kind of head to a, a shareholder vote and, and to a close as, as quickly as we can. So I think, you know, we're kind of pushing along in our, on our schedule here. And hopefully, you know, we can make some broader announcements here about, you know, specific concrete date, concrete dates pretty soon. Great. It's going to be probably a really exciting year for you with already the deal pipeline you already have going. I'm sure you have a lot of plans afoot, but I guess what is the the thing you're most excited about uh, taking advantage of being a public company? You know, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, you know, number one is um, being able to have more tools in the in the in the war chest here for our employees, particularly with you know things like you know restricted stock units and you know other forms of compensation that will enable us to be able to compete better in the talent war. I think you know similarly enough. The ability to kind of leverage that same vehicle for you know um, attractive M and A transactions that we see in the marketplace, um, and then also just you know having a, a permanent base of capital. We've been a private company for a very long time. Um, raising capital in the private markets is highly inefficient, and there's a lot of friction, just constant back and forths and negotiations and, and whatnot. And so I think the ability to have a more permanent capital base and more visibility for us to be able to allocate into our strategy is something that we're you know, really looking forward to really focusing our efforts around just running good operations and delivering for our customers. And so in many ways, what's interesting about Fiscal Note is that we are an established scaled business that's really entering into the markets. And it is really going to get a turbocharge out of the, out of the public market process from the hundreds of employees that we have, they're going to be able to benefit from their options and their, and their stock performance. Um, the M&A targets we're going to be incorporating into our existing scaled business. And then of course, the permanent capital base that enables us to go from a scaled business into a larger business uh, with you know more opportunities in the future. Yeah, certainly. It's going to be really fun to keep watching you guys as you get, get going with all the, the next steps of things. And I'm, I'm very interested to see how all of the international, uh, continued international coverage and, and tools get, get folded in. But mostly, uh, Tim, thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks, Tim.